Welcome to worship this morning. We're going to open with these words. Let the glory of your name be the passion of this church. Amen. Let's sing it together. Sing it, church. Let the glory of your name. Oh, let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God heart in here that knows you, that they can say unashamedly, you are all to me, you are all to us. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you and they can't say that. Lord, today could be their day of salvation. We pray that you would just speak to them and show them how much you love them and show how they can come into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray and for his sake. Amen. 
All right, we'll go ahead and be seated. Uh, take out one of those connection cards and uh, please uh, fill that out. Maybe you've got a prayer request. Uh, maybe you want to know a little bit more about the church. What does it mean to be baptized? What does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? Uh, those are on the back part of the card. You can check a box and the church will be getting back with you and get any information you, uh, you request, okay? So please do that and then put that in the offering plate. Uh, by the way, the offering plate, uh, and, and I think I speak for Brother Philip as well. God bless you for your faithfulness. You know, we've, we've always had a tradition of having the offering as a, as a part of the middle part of the service because it is important. It is an act of worship. And, and so we don't, you know, just assume, okay, we're just going to put this at the end of the service. No, we're doing that to try to keep the, the touch uh, of, of everybody touching the same thing down, right? And so, so we're not at all saying... The offering is an afterthought. It's very much an act of worship, and you have proven that by your giving. And so God bless you for that. And, and just wanted to, uh, anybody who thought, well, oh, they just sort of throw the offering at the end. No, 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 no. That's not our thought at all. We just want to try to help keep you safe, okay? So uh, thank you for understanding that. All right. We're going to continue to worship, and as uh, Brother Philip continues to lead us in, uh, in Daniel, we remember that in Daniel 7 is the first time that we hear the words spoken of God that He is the Ancient of Days. And what a, what a deep, rich, awesome name that is when we serve an awesome, almighty God. Let's sing these words together. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise
Christianity to downplay the shed blood of Jesus, and uh, and that's tragic, amen, uh, because we know without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, and so uh, we're going to share a song with you that does not downplay at all. It really brings to the forefront what Jesus did uh, with the shedding of his blood, and I hope that each and every one within the sound of my voice can say, yes, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that blood has been shed for me and that I am, 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 am a child of God because of it. And if not, you can be today.
that try to hide this precious blood that gave me life but in three What's better news, that he saves or that he saves and he's coming back for us? Amen. And let's just sing about that just now. Even so, Lord, come.
coming this very moment. Lord, we know that we want to live a life that would be ready and willing and able for you to be here any moment, any day. Lord, we gratefully anticipate your return. We thank you for the salvation that made that possible. And we just pray that as we open your word, that you would transform our lives today. In Christ's name we pray. Okay, Daniel chapter 9. Let's study the Word of God together. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to see part 2 of the vision of the 77s. I suggested to you in the previous sermon that this vision and prophecy is one of the most difficult in the entire Old Testament. Uh, for some, it's very simple, very straightforward, yet I think <clears throat> the complexity of it would be beyond question as we look into it today. All right, Daniel 9, let's pick up in verse 24 and read down through verse 27. By the way, the songs today, excellent in light of the passage of Scripture. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, I know what manner of entry we had unto you, that you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Aren't you thankful for the second coming of Jesus? Wouldn't hurt my feelings at all if it were right now. Amen. Looking at our world, oh, even so, Lord, come, right? I hope that's the desire of your heart. Chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the anointed one, prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The actual translation is, he and he shall make, he shall confirm a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to, a, to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right. So, it's from this passage that many will derive what's referred to as dispensationalism. Now, I know that if, it was, if we were not live streaming, we might take time to go through five, six different views on how people see this. And we may do that eventually on a Sunday morning, but I may reserve that only for the 11 o'clock crowd. <laughs> so you'll have to come back for both. But a dispensationalist will view this passage and derive his, he will look at this passage and derive his view of Israel and the church from this particular set of scriptures. In other words, a dispensationalist will see an indeterminate amount of time or a gap between the 69th and 70th week. And we often call that the church age. So in other words, they would see 69 weeks have taken place, but now we've had a gap of some 2,000 years and then we'll eventually pick up to the 70th week, which is in the future. This is not my school of thought. We will, of course, discuss how I see this, but it's safe to say that most of us probably grew up, because of the rise in the early 1900s, you do understand that this view didn't even come about until after the 1900s. Uh, the fact is, it's safe to say that most of us growing up in an SBC church probably came from more of a dispensational school of thought with some variations in there. So I'm sure I'm going to give you some things today that you are not accustomed to. It is a challenging passage. I do not claim to be a, uh, an expert on eschatology, but I do know what the Bible says, right? And we can certainly read the Bible and find out what the scriptures say to us. So my view and my desire will be to let scripture interpret Scripture. That's the goal today. So as we approach this passage, please don't fail to see the immense amount of covenant language that Daniel has already given us. If, you go, if we had time, we would go through and, and show you every time Daniel mentions something about the covenant in Daniel chapter 9 because he's praying uh, expressly about it. Do you know that in Daniel 9 is the first time that Daniel will use the term Yahweh God? It's used here. What does that speak to you about? Hopefully you've heard me talk enough about the Old Testament to remind ourselves that this is the covenant name of our God. It's really the only name of God. Everything else is a title. Okay? So he is Yahweh God. This is God's covenant name. And so as we begin, or as Daniel begins to describe 
uh, or as we think about the description of who God is, and as we dig into the text, I think it's important to keep that at the top of your mind. This is covenant language that Daniel has been using. So there are many direct and indirect quotes and teachings about the people actually breaking that covenant, right? That's why they're in bondage, and that's why they are in exile at this moment, or at the moment of the writing, was because of it. And two times in the prayer, Daniel will say, God sent his prophets, but you did not listen to the prophets. And what do we know about the prophets? They were nothing less than covenant prosecutors. You were supposed to do this, and God sends his prophet, and he reminds him that what you're doing is sin. Turn from it. And so Daniel, of course, reveals the fact that they indeed received the final curse of all being banished from their land. Again, we know this from the scripture. I want to remind you of this because it should be the first thing that pops into your mind. They broke the covenant, and based upon breaking the covenant, where are they? They're in exile in Babylon. So, we have a covenant context. The second thing to remember as we dig in is that the prayer is based on another New Old Testament text. Okay, Jeremiah, if I get there and read before you do, you better write it down because uh, I'm going to be preaching fast. All right? And we're going to see a lot of texts of Scripture this morning. I hope you will listen because I think it will be a huge benefit to your life if you will. So in the Old Testament, Daniel is praying uh, along with this particular word. Jeremiah 25 verse 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? Seventy years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So how long does the period of desolation last? Seventy years. Is, is it simply an arbitrary number? Seventy. Where does it come from? Is it just wafted out of the air? How do we even come up with 70 years? Is there a biblical reason for God telling them that the exile is going to be 70 years. Let me read something else. I would submit to you that there is a biblical reason. Leviticus chapter 26. Bible drill. Yes, Leviticus chapter 26. The Bible says, in verse 40, He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. Consider this passage in light of Daniel 9. In this passage on the exile, we actually see why God had given 70 years. The land will be abandoned and will make up for Sabbaths. Under the Mosaic law, right? Under the Mosaic law, you had a sabbatical year. And it was every seventh year. 
that there ended up being a sabbatical year. Every seventh year, the land was supposed to get a rest. So the land actually got a Sabbath. In the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there are passages that point the finger at Judah for not allowing the land to rest. So 70 years is 10 sabbatical years. So they are punished in exile corresponding directly to the sabbatical year, which they were breaking over and over again. And after seven sevens, you got 49. And after 49, you have 50, which is the year of Jubilee. Okay, 10 sabbaticals or seven sabbaticals uh, given 70 years. Now back up to chapter, 50, uh, chapter 25 of the book of Leviticus, verse 8. Get you in context so we know what's going on. There's a reason for it. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. Well, all this is so important. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land all its inhabitants, you sh it shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this passage we have the establishment of the sabbatical year. When they were to let the land rest. In addition, you have the seven 49 years ending up in a jubilee. So the year of jubilee, which is seven sevens, will be a time of release of the people of debt. And also they would be re relieved and get money back. Slaves were also released. And again, there are numerous themes that go along with the jubilee year. When we see that Israel was in exile for 70 years, it's in direct relationship to the violation of sabbatical years. That's important. So keep in mind, a sabbatical year and 77s is how long? 490 years. These two things play a critical role in Daniel's prophecy. I also want you to see one more passage in that Second Chronicles. This one brings it together for us. If I can find it, here we go, 2 Chronicles 36. Verse 15. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. And that is not the verse I want. 19 through 21. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his servants until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Who's going to release the children to go back to the land? The king of Persia who is Cyrus. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah... Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill how many years? All right, you may say, preacher, why in the world did you do that? Because it's important. How many of you actually knew that this was about sabbatical years? 
a couple of you, right? That's so vitally important for our exegesis of this text to understand that the sabbatical years was something that God said, if you don't keep the land like I told you to, then you're going you're to violate the covenant, and this is what's going to take place in your life. So Daniel is praying in concert with this. We have in this passage the bringing together of the violations of sabbatical years. Then we have the proclamation that the exile is going to take place. And then we know it's going to be up until the king of Persia. And then the king of Persia, Cyrus, is going to give permission to go back to their land. With that kind of background, then listen to verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Y'all see the connection? It's clearly there. The transgression, we have these couplets of what's going to take place. But it all flows from 70 sabbaticals or 10 jubilees. The final result in context of the 10th Jubilee is the final and complete satisfaction and deliverance through salvation in Jesus Christ. That is the fulfillment. As a matter of fact, you will remember in the book of Luke, here's what the Lord Jesus is going to do. And this is vitally important. He's going to pick up the scroll of Isaiah. And he's going to say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty. Where's that come from? I tell you that when Jesus stood that day, it was the day of Jubilee. It was the fulfillment of everything completely that Daniel had given in 490 years. If you know how to read your Old Testament, you will realize that the ultimate jubilee is Jesus Christ. He is the one who will set captives free. He is the one who will put an end to sin. Isn't that awesome? We learned it last week. We learned those couplets. All of this Jesus accomplished. He finished the transgression. He put an end to sin. He atoned for iniquity. He brought in everlasting righteousness. He sealed up both vision and profit. And he himself is the holy place himself. That was anointed. He is anointed. Remember there in Luke? He's the one saying that he has set the captives free. All right. That's a sermon within itself, right? I was antsy to get up here. Uh, I didn't realize the order, but when uh, we finished the song, uh, I tell you he's alive. It was all I could do to not sit in the, It was all I could do. It's my turn, right? I got to get up there and preach this. Why? Because he's coming back. All right. Here we go. Here's the points in your bulletin, Okay. That you have before you. Jerusalem will be rebuilt in answer to prayer. That's what's going on in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be how many weeks? Now folks, if you just see that as an introduction to 490, then you're missing it. Why does the writer say 70 weeks? He wants you to understand that this is the end of the first jubilee. Right? He wants you to see that that these things are broken down in in years for a particular purpose. And at the end of that one, we know that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Now, the big question is, what is the decree? And how do you count these years? I mean, as a a Bible student, you're trying to figure this out. Second Chronicles, it's very clear that Cyrus' decree went out. And we believe that was 537 B.C., It's also recorded in Ezra 1, 1 through 2. On top of this, there are two passages in the book of Isaiah 
Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, 13 that suggest that that's the decree, right? Seventy years are decreed about the transgression. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore. The word going out. When did this take place? When did the decree begin? Well, many scholars believe it was the one when Artaxerxes is commissioned or commissions Ezra. And that takes place in Ezra 7 and that's around 457. Artaxerxes' commission to Nehemiah would actually take place as recorded in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 6 at the same time frame. I can't be dogmatic. Was it the Cyrus's decree? Was it the one Artaxerxes gave? We don't know for sure. But what if he is saying that from the issuing forth of the one from Artaxerxes was around 457 until the anointed one, the Messiah, comes? There will be seven sevens plus 62 sevens, a total of 69 weeks or 483 years. This would mean that Gabriel is establishing the coming of Christ to earth the first time around A.D. 26. It's pretty accurate, isn't it? Most scholars believe that that was the exact time Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, anointed with the Holy Spirit, and that is John 1.32. Now again, I think the first sevens is, is real important for us because that would be when the temple is rebuilt with plaza and moat. The first jubilee is the first seven sevens. And that takes place under Zerubbabel and then Ezra. So, I think if all you see there is an odd way of saying 69, then you end up missing the point of a seven sevens or a sabbatical year, which in essence you may miss the point when Christ himself stands and holds the scroll and declares that he came to set the captives free. So after the 62 sevens, it does bring us to 69 weeks or 483 years at the time of Christ's arrival. So I think this refers to 69 consecutive weeks. Nothing in history warrants a break between those two periods. So the prophecy of Daniel 9.25 was fulfilled when the walls were finished around 425 B.C. And almost, that was 100 years after Daniel saw this prophecy. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it? I want to remind you that all of this should speak to your heart regarding what God says about his second coming. If he was this pointed to tell Daniel what would happen some hundred years before it actually took place, how much more so should we be ready for his second coming? Because he's told us clearly. So, Jerusalem would be rebuilt in answer to prayer. That's the first thing. And then in verse 26, the anointed one will die. Listen to the word of the Lord. The Bible says, And after... The 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay? This speaks directly of the Messiah. Let me remind you of Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, when, when, who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Same language of Isaiah, a contemporary, that he's going to be cut off. So Gabriel is saying that the anointed one will be cut off after a total of 69 sevens or 483 years. What that means is sometime after 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off. How long after? Well, we're not exactly sure. The 12 missed this incredible prophecy. Do you think that the disciples knew what the term Messiah meant? 
Should they have? You know, the New Testament word is Christ. And when you see the word Christ, it is the Old Testament equivalent of Messiah. Do you remember when Jesus asked the disciples, we preached this a few weeks ago, who do you say that I am? Who got it right? What did Peter say? You are the... That's the Old Testament uh, fulfillment of the term Messiah. And so after this, after he says you are the Messiah, something interesting happens in Mark's gospel. Don't turn there, but just listen. Here's what Jesus will begin to do. In chapter 8, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man... Where did that come from? Directly from Daniel, chapter 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, again, Peter would understand from the Old Testament, given by divine revelation to him, right? Flesh and blood can't do this, only the Father. He would understand that you are the Christ. But did he understand what the Christ would do? No, because Jesus has to help him. It's almost like he says, now, you got the Daniel prophecy right, that I am the Christ. But you're missing the other part that the Messiah will be, what? Cut off. He will die. So Jesus begins to say to him, this is what's going to happen to me, the Son of God. And what does Peter say? Far be it. No way possible. And Jesus says, get behind me. Do you think God had a plan? Right? Nothing was going to stop that plan. And even Peter misses the mark here. So we make the same mistake regarding sometimes the prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ, we don't take them seriously enough. We're often unprepared at his coming. So we're walking through the text, all right? Are you with me so far? God bless those watching on TV, right? They can't, they can't ask a question. They, can't, they can pause me, right? Maybe get that again and read some of these texts. But Jerusalem will be rebuilt in answer to prayer. The anointed one will die. And now 26b, the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. Remember how we preached last week, good news, bad news? Well, that flow is going, right? So back in Daniel, I'm presently in Isaiah, but let's get back to Daniel. The Bible says, we'll be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Now... Here's the place where there's tremendous disagreement, okay? The NAS, that is the New American Standard, uses a small p at this point for prince. You see it toward the end of the text. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. But here's the deal. It is the exact same Hebrew word that's used before in every situation, right? The anointed one is... Same Hebrew word. Prince is used interchangeably before that in the text, right? Is there any reason to think that there's a change of antecedent in this text? If you're just reading it, and there's, not, there, there's no sense whatsoever that an antecedent has changed. So some think that this is actually the prince. That there's been a change. And the prince now that he's speaking of is Titus. And, uh, or some may think it is Vespasian the ruler in charge in A.D. 70. So others would say, well, it's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem under the Romans. So dispensationalists see all of this taking place not 
during the time of Jerusalem's temple being destroyed in 70 AD, they see all of this taking place at the end times. You all understand? That is the dispensational view. I think the prince is the same prince mentioned above, and he is the Messiah. That's my belief. What is in view here is actually the Jewish people. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. You're like, if it's Christ, you're telling me his people is going to destroy the temple? Exactly. I am telling you that. Why? Because Josephus helps us here. Do you actually understand and know that the temple was destroyed from the inside out by the Jews and not the Romans? Did y'all know that? The temple was actually destroyed. The Jews did this themselves. They destroyed their own temple. They not only destroyed the inside of the temple, but also during a violent civil war that was happening among the Jewish people, they actually destroyed their own city. A Jewish sect actually burns the temple before the Romans ever arrived. Now, to be sure, the Romans made sure that no rock or stone was standing on top of another in Jesus' prophecies, but they actually destroyed their own temple first. Then the Bible says the end like a flood was finishing off, and it was. It was Titus in 70 AD. So the phrase war will continue until the end refers to the fact that quite a few years passed before the temple was destroyed in AD 70 and finally conquered in AD 132. That was a long time. Here's Josephus' summary of the Civil War. Listen to this, of the Jewish wars. Listen to how tragic this is. And I quote, The Jews rebelled against the Romans in AD 66. War continued for the next four years. The Jews won a partial victory in AD 70, putting the Roman Cestus Gallus to flight. But the small victory would cost the Jews dearly in the long run. Vespasian began to campaign against Israel, but he was called back to Rome. Consequently, his son Titus would finish the task. He entered into Jerusalem at its most crowded time. When is that? Passover. Reports up to 600,000 Jewish people were slaughtered. And the, and the wars continued to the end, for the remaining Jews continued to resist for some 60 years. There are many parallel passages to this. Matthew 24, 15. Luke 21, 20. Luke 20, excuse me. Luke 21, verse 20 through 24, 15 through 20, 16 through 21, 19 to 23, and 24 through 20, 21 through 24. So, uh, I give you those references for your own work there. But from AD 70 until the Six Days War in 1967, Jerusalem was trampled underfoot by Gentiles. Just imagine that. All the way up to that time frame. And then the Bible says, the anointed one will make a strong covenant. The Bible says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay. What do many people believe this is? They believe it's the Antichrist. Right? You've probably been taught that many, many times. Is there a coming Antichrist? You better believe it. As a matter of fact, 1 John tells us that many Antichrists have already come into the world. Is there ultimately going to be one that uh, the Scripture is pointing to? Absolutely. I just don't believe that's what this text is speaking about. I don't think he's talking about the coming Antichrist. If you compare, compare Daniel 9 
With Luke 21 and Matthew 24, it shows that in all likelihood that the Antichrist is not the one here of the abomination of desolation spoken of here. So here's the literal word-for-word translation in the Hebrew. Y'all ready for this? This and 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. No, it is important. Listen, on a wing, which means on the corner of an altar, will be appalling, detestable things even until complete destruction and what has been determined will be poured out on the desolating one. How many years were determined? 490, right? The NIV gives this rendering. And one who causes desolation, I believe, bracket, Titus, will come upon the pinnacle of the abominable temple until the end that is decreed is poured out on the desolate one. Now again, here's the most controversial part. The common dispensational understanding is that the Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jewish people. And then halfway through the tribulation time, he will break that particular covenant. The NIV, the, the New King James is best here. He will confirm the covenant with many during the one week. And if you look up the Hebrew word to cut a covenant, there's a, there's a different word he could have used if the Antichrist is actually establishing a covenant on his own. But this is more reaffirming or confirming a covenant. I don't see this as the Antichrist making a covenant with the Jews during the seven years of tribulation. Here's the deal. Which is not spoken of anywhere else in the Bible. Are y'all listening? That there's going to be a, a seven week, three and a half cut off. That's not given anywhere else in the Bible in that regard of the seventh week. What we have is Jesus Christ causing the new covenant to prevail with the many. So what I see is the New Testament, the new covenant in the blood of Christ being established during that last week. That seventh week is established by the new covenant, right? Do we have proof of this? Well, sure we do. Or we, got, we have covenant language, Isaiah 53. Some of you are, have that zoned overlook. Chapter 53. Didn't I tell y'all that we would sm- we'd have smooth sailing for six chapters? But y'all been begging me to get back in Daniel. Here we are, right? Chapter 53, verse 10. And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, y'all looking at that? When he makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. Right? There is an establishment of a covenant. There is the confirming of a covenant. And many shall be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is code language for the people, chosen people of God. He puts an end to the sacrifice and grain offering. Notice what it says there. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for a week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So what people who are dispensationalists believe that a new temple would be built, rebuilt in Jerusalem, and for that last seven days there'll be kind of a, a peaceful time, and that eventually he'll break this covenant in the middle. I don't agree with that. I think the sacrifice and grain offering 
that is spoken of is the fact that Jesus Christ himself will be that final offering. He himself is the final sacrifice. He himself is the one who puts an end to sin. Okay? The reality is that if he is Jesus, we're speaking of here, when we get here, the middle of the week of the final 77s, he puts a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. And I would suggest that this was, symbi- this was theologically accomplished on the cross when he said, It is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. Okay? And it historically took place in A.D. 70. Why do we say that? Because let's say Jesus died in uh, 30 A.D. Okay? When was the temple destroyed? 70 A.D. Now, did the Jews continue to do sacrifices from 30 to 70 A.D. in the temple? You better believe it. Should they have been? No. Why? Because the sacrifice had been given. Right? But there was a historical fulfillment where God had to show the people what was spiritually accomplished has also been physically accomplished. And you can't make another sacrifice on an altar in a temple because the temple's gone. Right? He put an end to it completely. And to this very day, there are no more sacrifices. Why? Because God said it's over. My son accomplished it all. Okay? (sighs) Y'all got all that? You can go back and listen to the tape. All right, it's already after uh, 10, but I'm not stopping. All right, here we go. God will protect his church. This is the end of the sermon. Okay? Now, if if you have your copy of the Word of God, it would... You would do well to keep one finger there in Daniel and then flip over to the book of Revelation. Uh, Let's start first in uh, chapter 5. And this is not going to be long, so don't sweat it. You don't have anything else to do, do you? All right? Okay, God will protect his church. We may have a question. All right, preacher, you talked about three and a half years. Did you know that from the beginning of Jesus being anointed in the Jordan... Up until he dies on Calvary and ascends into heaven was three and a half years. Times, times, and half a time. Do y'all realize that? Now we may ask the question, what happened to the other three and a half years? Is, is, Is that something in the future or is it something that has already taken place? I would tell you that it's after the ascension of Christ into heaven, the establishment of his church... And from Acts 1 through Acts 7, the God of eternity is protecting his embryonic stage church so that the enemy does not destroy it. Okay? That is my belief on it. And do I have scripture to support it? Glad you ask. All right? Here we are. So keep a finger in Daniel. Uh, Let me read something in Daniel first. Daniel chapter 12, verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. And that's what most of you are saying about this sermon, right? Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. All right, chapter 5, 1 through 5 of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? To open the scroll and break the seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Hallelujah for the Lamb. Amen. And the seals are open and the content of Revelation is given to us. And it tells us what happened in the last three and a half years of the 70th week. They are fulfilled right there in the first century, right after the ascension of Christ. So Revelation 12 begins the second cycle of the book of Revelation. It actually returns to the first century where chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Revelation are speaking to seven actual churches. What does chapter 12 describe in the book of Revelation? It describes for us, if you read it, it actually describes the birth of Jesus. It describes his ascension. And it describes the beginning of the, local, of the church with incredible imagery. There's a dragon, and that's who? Satan. There's a woman represented by the chosen people of God, which is the church. And there is the male child, all in chapter 12, 1 through 6. All of that's there. So from the baptism of Christ until the death and ascension of Christ, there was three and a half years. That is the first fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. The last half extends from the ascension to the dispersion of the church out of Jerusalem into the world. And here's what, I, here's what we know. Look at verse 6. And the woman fled, Revelation 12, 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for how long? 1260 days. How long is that? That's 300, right? That's three and a half years. That's where the church of the Lord God will be protected. So, I would suggest that this is actually Acts 1 through 7, chapters 1 through 7. So the church was growing by thousands. Then all of a sudden, persecution began. Look at verse 5 of chapter 12. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What's that called? Ascension? And the woman fled into the wilderness. Now war arose in heaven between Michael's angels. We're going to see spiritual warfare next week in chapter 10. Notice down in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Isn't that awesome? The enemy knows his time is short. Listen down, verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. Who's the woman? The church, to sweep her away. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments. You know who that is? That's you and me and God, of God. And hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So listen, Satan's efforts to destroy the church through persecution is what you see. But in reality, by the grace of God, the scattering of the church of believers actually begins to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thus, it came to the U.S. when it wasn't called the U.S., right? We got the gospel here. And yes, there is going to be a climactic war and battle. 
And we know that Daniel 7 mentions an antichrist. There is a satanic final last move. A trinitarian type of move. With Satan, the beast, and the antichrist coming in the future. But here's the best news of all. Jesus Christ is coming again. His time is short. He's going to destroy the enemy. And the king shall reign forever. Satan is at enmity with the woman and the seed. Don't you forget that living in 2020 in the United States of America. For all believers, he wants to accuse us before God. But Jesus has defanged the dragon. And all his accusations are toothless when it comes to those who trust Christ. The new exodus has happened. The first one was out of Egypt. This one was out of sin and death. God took his people out of sin and death. Satan's making his war on us, but the outcome will be as it has always been through history. Strong as the enemy looks, folks, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the seed of woman, will crush his head. Here's what we must do today. We must be a church on mission, right, for the exalted Christ. I believe that when the testimony of Jesus hits the last person in the last nation that our God wants it to hit, he's coming back. I just wish it was today. I believe it's going to happen. The church on mission for an exalted Christ, we spread the music of worship among the nations. I love the story of how God saved the life of E.P. Scott. Y'all listen to this. Scott was an American Baptist missionary to India in the 19th century. He felt God leading him to go to a tribe in East India called the Naga. The problem was that they were savage head hunters, much like the ones that Jim Elliott went to the Aka Indians in the 50s. Tradition holds that before Naga man could marry, he had to kill 30 of his enemies, shrink their heads, and wear them on his neck to prove his bravery. The British officers in the region that Scott planned to go to urged him not to go into that territory. If you do, you're going to die. Nevertheless, he felt God's call, got his supplies together, and he took his treasured violin Several days into his journey, he came up to 12 men, or 12 men approached him, headhunters of the tribe. They immediately surrounded him with spears pulled, pointed at him. He had no weapon with him. So assured that he was going to die, he pulled out his violin, closed his eyes, and began to play and sing a song called, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Am I a Soldier of the Cross, a Follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Amazingly, as he played and sang, he realized that he was still alive. He opened his eyes and noticed that the 12 tribesmen had dropped their spears and they wanted the music to continue. They afterward welcomed Scott to stay in their land as long as he played the violin. Mm. As in this amazing story of E.P. Scott, when we go to the nations... We spread the pleasing music of the worship of the only king that exists. Y'all realize this? He has all authority, even over the coronavirus. He has all authority. That means there's not a single bit of sand under your shoe when you leave this church that Jesus Christ doesn't reign over. Everything. That's the king. So Jesus reigns over all in power. He reigns over this church in grace. And one day, he will reign over his church in the new earth in all of his glory. There'll never be another closed country when Jesus comes from heaven. 
Never, ever, 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 ever be another closed country. Because every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And all God's people said, Either, whether you believe with my interpretation or not, here's what I'm telling you. The King is coming again. And I wish He'd come today. I really do. I wish the King would come today. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the word. And I know, Father, that some of this was tough. Lord, and when you get uh, 40 minutes or whatever of time, Lord, it's difficult sometimes. But you don't want to leave people hanging. You want them to understand uh, what you believe the scripture teaches. And Lord, may you comfort us. God, help us to rehearse and play the sweet music of the authority of Jesus everywhere we go. God, help us. God, help us do that because you're going to reign. You already reign. There's the already and the not yet. You are reigning until you make all your enemies a footstool. You're already reigning in heaven on your throne. The work is finished. Everlasting righteousness is given to your people. And God, one of these days, you're coming again in all of your glory. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. You're coming, Lord, in all of your glory. And we anticipate it. May it change the way we live and the way we think, knowing full well that you told us in your word, I promise that you are coming again. If, Father, if there's someone lost, let them know that you have all authority. You have authority to give life, and you have authority to take life. You alone have the authority to give salvation. You alone have the authority to withhold salvation. You have all authority. God, we, we worship and honor you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's sing together as we uh, dismiss today. Let the glory of your name be the passion of our church. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe.